Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you today from high in the hills of Oakland, California, overlooking the beautiful San Francisco Bay, birthplace and epicenter of the modern cannabis freedom movement. A quick reminder, we are now translated into 195 different languages via the YouTube subtitle Translate Function. And thank you so much for the comments and questions that you've been sending in. They're very, very helpful. The spark that we lit here in California 30 years ago has now spread all across the planet. Our tribe, our people, the beautiful cannabis tribe, has been infused with a huge hit of hope and courage. And all around the earth, we are busy reforming laws, making new discoveries, starting new cannabis businesses, getting people out of prison, and whenever possible, and as soon as possible, completely dismantling prohibition. Now, the pace of these changes is unfolding unevenly in different places at different times. Your cannabis experience can be uh, drastically different depending on what state or province or country that you find yourself in. But I believe that this process of reform, this process of legalization is going to continue all over the world until everybody who needs or just wants this plant has safe, legal, and affordable access to it. In the meantime, because of this uneven pace of change, there's incredible variation. Um, it's like there's different worlds of cannabis that are existing simultaneously side by side with each other. In some places, cannabis is still completely illegal. We're in prohibition. It's an underground market there. In other places, reform has advanced enough so that we're beginning to be able to start to create sort of semi-legal, gray market, tolerated scenes for cannabis, the, the gray market scene. And then in a handful of countries, in several states, in several provinces, we've seen the complete and total legalization of cannabis. With that, we've seen the creation of a for-profit market We've seen uh, very detailed and stringent regulations in most places, and we've seen the entry of big corporate players into the cannabis industry. So today, uh, we're going to take a look at these three different worlds of cannabis, the underground world, the gray world, and the corporate world. Our guest is uniquely qualified to take us on this little journey because he's one of the few people alive today that's actually thrived and survived through all of these different models of cannabis, all these different kinds of scenes. And depending on where you are, you may not have experience with all of them now, but you will in the future. So with no further ado, um, please say hello to my brother, 
the co-founder of Harborside Health Center, the co-founder of the Last Prisoner Project, my lifeline partner, <clears throat> my lifetime partner in almost everything that I've done, Andrew D'Angelo. Hey, bro, how are you today? Good morning, brother. It's great to be on Radio Free Cannabis with you and the tribe today. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one. So, so let's uh, start digging right into it. And we're going to start with taking a look at the underground cannabis scene, which is a scene that you and I grew up in. And you know, what we found is that very often uh, prohibition and the, the essence of prohibition, the harms of prohibition, manifest first in, a, in the family situation. Um, and, uh, and I know that that, that happened uh, in our family. So could you talk a little bit about how that, how that was for you? How, did, the, um, how did, did prohibition and the underground cannabis scene manifest within our family? Our family, like most families, has had a long journey with cannabis and a long evolution with cannabis. In the beginning, I, I, you're 10 years older than me. So by the time I was five or six years old, you had already left home. You are already a cannabis activist. You are already trading in cannabis. And our family was breaking apart. Um, our parents split up. Our, our brother Daniel died when we were very young. I was two, you were 12. And there was more, there was a lot of conflict in the family. The women's rights movement was happening at that time. And our mother was a feminist. Our father wasn't too happy about that. There was some conflict with them. Um, the Vietnam War was happening. You were approaching draft age. There was an existential crisis that you were facing as a young man that was causing other kinds of political conflict in the family, particularly with dad who did get drafted in Korea and he felt like you, you don't break the law, you, don't, you, you, you do the right thing, we're smart enough. Um, so I grew up with a lot of conflict in the family and, and prohibition was part of that. Uh, what I remember the most, bro, is, is my mom and dad in the beginning, in those early years, were, were very protective of me. And they were worried that you were going to influence me too much and I was going to grow up to be a crazy outlaw. Um, there, it was a lot more complicated than that because you were on a mission that they didn't understand. And it took many decades for them to understand it. But by the end of both of our parents' life, they were fully involved in our mission with cannabis and supportive. They both took cannabis as medicine as senior citizens and um, in the end days of their lives. And they supported our entry into the gray market by helping us finance Harborside and giving us loans for that. And we sold our family home to do that. So it took a long time. But in those beginning years, there was, you know, I remember two basic things. One, my parents were very protective and they didn't want you to influence me too much, but um, you got to spend time with me. And I'm not sure if mom made you spend time with me or you just wanted to be a good brother and spend time with me but you would spend time with me alone away from the parents and that's when you could tell me the truth about who you were and what you were about and what this plant was about 
And you were always very honest with me as a young child. Um, and I got to be in this world with you. And I got to go to places with you. And oftentimes the places I went with you, people were consuming cannabis most of the time. <laughs> and um, there were often a lot of pretty girls around. And there were often a lot of creative, freaky people around. And I liked that as a little kid. I didn't get to be exposed to that in the world of my parents. And that was uh, thrilling for me. And I appreciated you being honest with me about cannabis and, and allowing me to come into that world as a little child and, and not try to hide it from me or, or keep things from me. When you're a kid, you know when your parents are keeping things from you. And I think our parents were trying to do that in a protective way. I think there was some wisdom in what they were doing too, bro, and in the sense that they knew there was going to be plenty of time for you and I to be revolutionaries together. They knew there was going to be plenty of time. We we're going to have our whole lives. And I think they wanted me to have a childhood as much as possible and to be a kid. And it was already difficult with Daniel's death and the divorce and you leaving home at a young age that they, they wanted to keep my childhood as simple as possible. So, but it was a lot of conflict. A lot of people fighting with each other in our family. Our parents were not getting along. You were having ideological fights with our dad about cannabis and the war and politics. Um, um, dad was very much an establishment person and, and you were anti-establishment. That was a heavy conflict that I observed and sort of was a part of in my own way, but I didn't get to experience it the same way you did. It must have been very hard, right, to be in conflict with your dad uh, that way. Um, but eventually, you know, over time, as we together as brothers shared what we were doing with our parents and, and, and as you did with me as a kid, just very transparent and honest. And eventually our parents were able to see what we were doing was mission driven and that it was a good thing, not a bad thing. And, and, and by the end, they were very supportive and proud of our mission and our work together. So there was this um, very intense period of conflict within the family. And like so many other people, the first realizations of prohibition, the first impact on, on you uh, seems to have landed there in the family. Um, what about outside the family as you, as you started growing up? Uh, what do you remember uh, about the about the underground cannabis scene? How was that for you as you know a child emerging into that? Well, the two experiences I, I remember most. One was an internal experience where you were taking me around to all of your friends and business partners and associates, and it wasn't just cannabis that you were trading. You were trading in politics and change um, and music and culture. And there was a whole scene that I got to be a part of. And I didn't, you know, when you're a five, six, seven, eight-year-old kid and you're in these scenes, you don't realize there's a big, ugly world surrounding it, attacking it all the time. You don't realize that until I had to go visit you in jail when I was nine years old. Um, so those first few years, it was this insulated world with all these freaky, beautiful people. And we were doing all these things. And I was learning about this different world. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had to go visit you in jail. And that's when this idea that the world has a much different feeling about this plant than you do, and that we did as a kid, I thought it was good. 
what I saw was good. The people I saw that you were working with, with were good. They treated me well. They took care of me as a kid. They, they, they loved me as their own. So I saw a good tribe of people that you were surrounded by. And then I had to go visit you in jail. And that was a much different experience. Mm-hmm. And I remember the jail had a rule that you had to be 10 years old. And I had just turned nine. And my parent, our parents had been long separated and they were at full on war with each other at this point. And, and they were in divorce proceedings. <laughs> And they had to go visit you in jail and be parents as if they weren't divorced. And, and they had to drive me out to that jail. And it was about a five-hour drive. It was in the middle of nowhere in the country of Virginia. And we had to lie to the jail people. And, and we, you know, we had, they had to coach me on the whole ride over there about how to lie to the jail people that I was 10, not 9. And, and, and they had taught me my whole life never to lie. That was one of the things our parents had instilled in us and all of a sudden they were teaching me how to lie. And it was this amazing moment where you're a little kid, you're going to visit your brother, it's stressful because you know he's in jail. You had already told me you were going to jail. You had already taken me out to dinner, you know, a few days before you had to go to jail and you explained the whole thing to me. So I knew what was happening intellectually. But when you go experience a prison as a kid visiting a relative and you're talking to you through the plexiglass and the phone next to your ear and you're seeing what the guards are doing to you and what the, just the environment is, it's shocking. Um, and it was a, a very powerful message to me as a little child that the world was not okay with what you did and who you were and what you were all about. And the world was sending very clear messages to me that I was going to have to make a decision about this. And that I was going to have to either love and support my brother or decide that he was bad. And I remember at the jail, the, the, the jailer gave me a lecture because the parents had to go visit you before I did. I, they, they took him in one at a time or the parents went in and then I went in. But for some reason, I was alone with the sheriff. And he starts lecturing me about you and about cannabis and about what is good and what is bad and who is good and who is bad. And I think he was trying to scare me straight. There was this whole scared straight thing happening in those days. Um, but I really was offended by that. I was really offended by that. I was a little kid. I did not really know what was going on, truly, ideologically or politically. I'm nine years old. I don't really know. But I knew that this guy was trying to tell me that my brother's bad. And so I knew that was wrong. I knew that was a lie. I knew my brother was good. So that experience, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know that that experience activated me, basically, activated me as a cannabis activist, as a political person. But it did because when you're a little kid, man, you know when people are lying to you. You know it intuitively. It's something that children have, a bullshit meter, um, that, that most people don't have, that, that adults lose. You lose that over time. Um, or you can lose that over time if you're not really super aware of it. So um, that experience, it, you know, planted a little seed in me that didn't sprout until a few years later. Um, but 
I knew that something was profoundly wrong and contradictory in the experience that I was having with cannabis in the family and the world. And I didn't know that I was going to spend the next 40 years working on this at that time. But it was one of the more traumatic things that happened to me as a child was having to go visit you in prison. It was, I remember not being able to sleep that night when I came home as a little kid. And I remember um, you wrote me a long letter from prison um, that, that, that we wrote letters to each other. Um, and and that, that, that those were real lifelines to me. And it was a real crisis. I mean, you were only locked up, I think, for four or five months. It wasn't like years and years, but it was a real crisis in the family. Um, and even though our family was divorced and there was a lot of conflict, it was still, it was a crisis. So, and then, you know, once I got turned on to cannabis a little bit later and, and, and you were able to school me on, 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 on the way, then, then we were on our, on our journey for life at that point. Right. I think that that pattern is really common. I suspect that there's many members of our audience today who are going through many of the same dynamics where, you know, a lot of the pressure that they're feeling around prohibition is coming from, from family members. Don't worry, friends, you'll make it through. Andrew and I made it through. Uh, you will too. So, so then what was the next step, bro? How did you start getting involved in the underground cannabis business? Well, you got me into it, bro. <laughs> um, so, one of the things, the way I dealt with trauma, a hard childhood that we just talked about was I was an athlete. So I, 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 I ran to sports. Sports was sort of a haven for me as a kid. It was something dad was really good at. It was a way for me and dad to bond. And it was a place of refuge and safety for me. So I was really in, I wanted to be a professional athlete. That was my first big dream. And like a lot of kids, I was the best athlete in my neighborhood and the best athlete in my elementary school, but far from the best athlete <laughs> in my high school. And um, when I was 15, I got injured. Uh, I was, and I couldn't be an athlete anymore. It was a pretty severe injury and my dream was over. And just like you and dad, the D'Angelo family, I was obsessed with that dream. And I, I fully believed it was gonna happen. <laughs> And so when I lost that dream, I had an existential crisis, an identity crisis, and I didn't know what to do. I was in physical pain. I, my dream was over. It felt like life was over, and I was, I was descending into a depression. And I was at mom's house one day, and we were having dinner, and you were there, and she was cooking, and we were in the kitchen, and you were smoking a joint, and as you had done, for a while up to that point, you offered me the joint. And up until that time, I had always said no because I was the athlete and I didn't, I was trying to be a professional athlete. But there was a little voice in my head that said, you know what? You need to take that joint. And maybe it was the way you were looking at me, or maybe it was the smell of that particular ganja that you had. Um, but I took that joint. And the effect of me from that joint and that experience was pretty instantaneous. I think you picked up on that. And we went upstairs and smoked joints for the rest of the night. Um, and, and I was a junior in high school, I think, at that time. And by the end of that evening, 
as D'Angelo's typically do, I had a new dream. <laughs> and it was cannabis, and I was ready to be sell cannabis, and I was ready to trade cannabis, and I was ready to uh, be a cannabis warrior, um, just like my big brother. So luckily, you <laughs> fronted me some weed, <laughs> and I was able to start selling weed in high school that's that's where i started my underground cannabis business um not just my friends in high school but people who lived in the same apartment building that i lived in with my father and stepmother and i remember the first out the first transaction i had was an ounce and it was a guy who lived in my apartment building and he was he we played tennis together um before i got hurt and um he needed some weed he knew he could tell that I, I i had taken weed and he needed some so he asked me if i could get him some i said sure and that's when i sold him my first ounce and i remember i went to his apartment with the ounce and 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 we you know smoked a joint together and the connection that this person and i had over that cannabis it wasn't so much the money that we exchanged and we had this transaction that occurred and that was somewhat thrilling. But what this plant was doing to this person, the appreciation and joy that this person was experiencing, it had been a while since he had scored an ounce of weed from somebody, so he was very thankful to get it. And we immediately had a bond of trust together um, that that exchange, I call it a cultural exchange more than a transaction because it, it felt like we were connecting on a soul level. And that was what was so thrilling about cannabis transactions underground was you, you had that connection and you couldn't do underground cannabis business without trust. Trust is the way and the, the way that was the glue that hold the whole ecosystem together. And the more you trusted each other, the more business you could do together, the more large the business could be, the more complex the business could be, because you didn't have to worry about people rolling on each other. Um, you would be, you protect each other with your trust and, and with your commitment to making sure that if the worst should happen, that redundancies and, and, and resources are in place to, to fight it off and, and, and to make sure the whole network doesn't go down with one bust. So it was the trust and the connection that was really the thrilling part of it for me. Some of my deepest friendships I, I still carry to this day were formed when I went to college and in, in those early years of transacting in the underground cannabis economy. Not so much that I was doing a great job, you know, in that job yet, but I was able to make those connections with people and we were able to form deep, deep bonds of trust very quickly. And um, this allowed me to build other things with those folks, creative projects and friendships and, and relationships that to this day give me a lot of pleasure. And, and they are my network. They, they constitute my network of people that um, I, 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 I use to, do this mission to do this work to this day. So the, the underground, the fun part about underground was sort of breaking the rules together and having that bond of trust 
Um, and then we also, you know, we were all about changing the laws. So it, there was a component of, okay, we did this. Now I need you to give me some of your profits so we can go change the laws. And so we, we had that part of the mission too, which um, you taught me um, and that we did together for a long time and still do. Um, but that, that also, that part of the mission um, bringing us out of the shadows into the light, as, as you would say, is, is also one of the elements that binds us together and that allows us to create a state of shared consciousness together so that we can build things and make decisions very quickly because we have that trust and shared consciousness. So one of the beautiful things about our relationship is just about any given circumstance or problem that you would be facing or that I would be facing independent of each other, we would probably make the same decision because we just have that trust and shared consciousness between us. And, and, and that's what underground networks and cultural networks have that I think is very valuable is that trust and shared consciousness. And it, 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 it works in a connected, complex, fast-moving world that we're finding ourselves in today. So you, you actually spent, um, like most of your career in, in the underground, what, what did that look like um, in the, you know, towards the end of that period of time? Were there scary moments? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So the thrill, we talked a little bit about the thrill of underground cannabis. The difficulty of underground ground cannabis is it's scary especially if you get good at it like we did and you become bigger and bigger we at one point we were selling cannabis you know a ton of cannabis a month at one time in our careers that's a couple thousand pounds of cannabis a month that's a lot of business to do in a hidden way um, and never get busted it's stressful very very stressful and you know talk about not sleeping much boy, oh boy, we didn't sleep much in those days, or at least I didn't sleep much in those days. And, and, and there would be events that would happen. Somebody would get busted in the network. You had to deal with it. Um, there were, we had protocols in place to deal with those things to make sure that that contagion didn't spread. But when those events occurred, and they did occur, every year somebody got busted somewhere. It was very stressful, very difficult. It took money and resources and time and energy. And just when you thought you had, you're getting ahead and you were able to stack some resources to do something like a ballot initiative in DC, boy, someone would get busted and all of a sudden there was 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 for legal defense that we had to come up with. And you fall behind uh, of your activist goal. Um, and so it was this whack-a-mole experience on, on, on dodging law enforcement. And that's incredibly stressful. It's incredibly hard. I, I don't like that. I, I like being transparent. I like being loud and proud. I like talking about cannabis in an open way and, 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 and learning about it. It's hard to learn about something if you can't talk about it openly. And so it was so frustrating. It was so frustrating to have your hands tied in all those different ways and to be living under such threat and such danger um, and getting locked up and getting busted. It happened to us. It was, it's a severe disruption to your life 
And I, I, it's the most painful thing. It's the most painful thing, getting busted and losing everything. People die. You know, it's not just you lose everything. People die. People get killed. Um, we've lost people. And it should never happen. You know, we shouldn't have to lose people. You know, so that was the painful part of prohibition was we were never meant to be criminals. That's not who we are, man. And yeah, sometimes it's a thrill to smash the state. But ultimately, we want to integrate what we do with the state. We want our state to be a better place. We want the promise of America to be fulfilled. That's the whole point of this. So we want integration. And, you know, visiting your friends in prison or having to bury people is very traumatic and very hard. And, and that's what motivated me, certainly, and I know you, to, to do the work of legalization, despite how imperfect it has been. So those uh, years uh, in the underground, um, when did they end and why did they end? <laughs> well, we were always trying to get them to end, you and I. That's why we supported Dennis and Prop 215. That's why we did Initiative 59 in Washington, D.C. in 1998. You and I and a handful of other activists, and only a handful, I might add, single-handedly passed that law in D.C. And we were very proud of that. And remember, one of our team members died from cancer um, during that effort. And, um, and then the federal government would not let the city implement the law that we passed. And that pissed us off. That Man, that made us angry. And we decided that it was time for us to go to California. Now, we had a giant wholesale underground cannabis business, and you can't just turn that off overnight. You have to wind that down. We had hundreds, hundreds of people that, we were, that were dependent on us, that were dependent on the work that we were doing with the plant to feed their families. So you can't just turn that off and unwind it. So there's a process that has to be engaged in, and, and we did. Um, then um, I, I, we, we, you and I, right around that time, we wanted to make a movie about why weed was made illegal. And that was part of our pivot to California was to tell that story and, and to make that film and, and to get legal or maybe gray, I guess you'd say. Um, and we did that, man. I, I moved to California and I was at UCLA studying screenwriting and you and I were writing this movie virtually over the internet, the very early days of the internet. And we were working really, really hard at it, um, at, at winding down that business and, and executing our pivot to California. And then you got busted, man. You got busted right in the middle of that work, right in the middle of that unwinding. And, and that was, that set us back. You know, the pivot got it dis disrupted pretty heavily. We were still committed to the pivot, but we had this legal case we had to go through and we were bankrupted and our elderly parents were really stressed out. And people got hurt and people died in that whole incident. 
Uh, so it was pretty clear that, you know, we couldn't stay underground anymore. But moving to California and getting that legal case behind us, and whenever you pivot, you know, it takes some time. My first efforts into legal or gray cannabis in the medical program were failures. I had this clone company in LA I was trying to do. It failed. You had to grow. You, had, you were making hash. We were selling it um, in the gray market before Oakland did the dispensary license and the Harborside story was able to start. So we were figuring it out. Um, and, and, but the real, the real turning point was when Oakland decided to license, uh, cannabis dispensaries. And we went for one of the licenses and that license became what is known as Harborside. And that was when we were really able to step into the gray market and be loud and proud and open about it for the first time and be able to open our doors to the public be right there on the floor, greet everybody, um, have big windows with light coming through them. And that's when I felt like I wasn't hiding anymore. It was really October 3rd, 2006, when I felt that was the first day. I remember it well. I remember just sitting in the floor and I don't know, we only had like six people come in that day maybe. Um, but it was such a thrilling experience to just stand there on the floor and people would come and they would buy their medical cannabis and they would go through our ombuds experience and we'd give them a tour and this whole vision that you created that we created together and it was so new and exciting and that's when I felt like I wasn't hiding anymore so that was really the first time where I felt like, okay, we're stepping into this thing in a real way and that we, we figured out a vision that's going to work. So that sounds like um, it, was, uh, it was a good part. It sounds like a good feeling. Um, were there any parts of that transition coming up from, you know, really decades in the underground that were, that were scary or difficult, challenging? Oh my goodness, yes. Well, first of all, you have to get used to making a lot less money. <laughs> So um, oh, people don't understand that. Um, when you go from underground to gray, you make a lot less money. And you know what? When you go from gray to fully legal, sometimes you make less money too, at least in the short term. And then maybe you make more. So that's one adjustment. I've never been a money guy, so it wasn't a huge adjustment for it. But you feel it. You feel it. Um, the other part of it is... I found that there were certain skills I had developed in the underground world that weren't so relevant in the gray world. And then there were skills that I didn't have in the underground world that actually I needed very much um, in the gray world. So in the underground world, you have to spend a good 80% of your time hiding and figuring out how to hide and making everything invisible. So you develop all these skills along those lines. And that's time and energy developing other skills that you don't have. I didn't develop managerial skills, typical management skills on how to manage a P&L or a team or a job description or a performance review. 
all those managerial things. I didn't know how to do those. I had to learn those. And when I found that I was in the middle of this Harborside experience about 10 days into it, <laughs> and I realized, oh my goodness, there's all these things I need to learn. Um, luckily, we were smart enough, I was smart enough, and, and Harborside was supported enough that I went to school. I went to UC Berkeley Extension and I took some management classes um, and educated myself and learned. And then I was able to take what I learned in the classroom and practice it every single day in the shop. So I would go to school at night and then I'd come in in the morning and I would, I would run the shop. And that was very powerful because most of the time when you're in business school, you don't have a shop to run. You don't have a business to run. It's all theory. Uh, and then you graduate from school and then you, you start running businesses and you learn what theory works and what doesn't. <laughs> um, but I had that laboratory available to me and it accelerated my ability to develop those skills. And I was able to learn very, very fast. And that was thrilling because I got to develop myself as a leader in ways that I wasn't able to do in, in the underground um, economy. And I was able to do now, and in fact, had to do now, because you have to write a report, performance review. You have to have a job description to post a, a role to grow your company because there's more people coming in, and, and you learn these things. And then you learn how to get good at it. And then when you learn how to get good at it, Harborside runs better and moves better, and the experience of the staff is better. And I can develop this trust that we were developing in the underground economy. I had to learn how to develop that in the gray economy, in the open economy. And you don't do it by breaking the law together. You do it by executing the license that the city has given you properly. And it's a totally different trip, man. It's a totally different trip. So the skills that you have to learn and develop it's really a gift. It, it, at, at first, it was like I, I felt like I was drowning and I didn't know, I didn't have the skill. Whenever you're doing something, you don't have the skill, you feel bad, right? You're like, ugh. But then when you learn it and you get good at it, then you have this moment where you feel very proud of yourself because, wow, I learned something new and it's helping my business and it's helping the community and it's helping the mission. And that's when, you know, the light bulbs go off and you realize that, wow, legalization can do more for me than just make me safer. It, it can develop me as a leader and as a business person and as a tribe member and it can make me feel more fulfilled and it can make my work more meaningful because I'm just better at what I do. So that was sort of the gift that was inside the difficulty of transitioning. So we hope, of course, that this transition that you've gone through from the underground market where cannabis is completely illegal, there's no way for us to even poke our heads up at all above the underground. Uh, and then as reform takes place, as we're successful at making changes in the law, the possibility, usually the first possibility that opens up is some kind of gray market possibility. Um, 
what advice do you have uh, for all the people? I mean, just think about all of the people who are going to need to make this change. Um, really, if there's hundreds of millions of cannabis consumers, then there must be millions of people in the underground cannabis uh, business. How do they make that transition from the underground into the gray? I think the transition from the underground to the gray can be very challenging for tribe members, no question. But I encourage everyone to do it. What's nice about the gray area is that people, the, the society, the decision makers, the mainstream society, wherever you live, they, they've decided to keep cannabis gray for a reason. And the reason is they, can't, they haven't figured out how to make it legal yet or they're scared of it and they're too scared to regulate it or they're too scared to legalize it, but they know they can't make it prohibited anymore. And so this sort of these gray models emerge. And I kind of like the gray space. The, the gray space is not a bad space for our tribe to be in. Yeah, you're gonna have to deal with making less money and yeah, you're gonna have to learn some new skills, but those things can be done. What's nice is, you don't have a lot of corporate and uh, transactional influences yet because it's gray. And those folks tend to want things to be very white and clear and compliant. And so people like us, DIY folks and folks that are a little bit more grassroots and authentic, there's space for us to find our spot in that gray in that gray market and and maybe you're a grower and you're a really good grower well there's probably a way for you to keep practicing your craft in the gray and serve that market and and make a living doing it you know, you're probably going to make a little less living than you did before but you'll still be able to make a living and practice your craft um if you're a trader of cannabis like we are, we're not growers, we're traders, you might be able to open a shop in a place like Spain um, and, and be in this gray area and build a real community and come to work every day and feel so good about the community you've built and, and be in the space and trade the cannabis and consume the cannabis. And there's, with a lot less rules and a lot less authority uh, and a lot less regulation. So the gray place is actually a really good place for our tribe to be in and and i hope that wherever you are that you can affect that gray space for as long as possible because that's where we all learn how to go from gray to fully legal um, and if that process happens too quickly sometimes we haven't quite figured out how to do that and we can be disrupted and we can be left behind or we can be faced with no choice but to be in the underground economy. And I know a lot of our tribe here in California are sort of looking at that. Very hard choice right now, you know? Um, so I like the gray, I like the gray. I think, I think the gray's okay. Um, there's always little constraints and obstacles, but, but uh, the gray place is, is okay for us. You can find your spot in the gray. It, the barriers to entry aren't as high, and, and there's lots of us that are trying to figure it out that you can bond and connect with and form alliances 
with and and leverage that trust and shared consciousness you know that's what we did the first weed we had on the board of harborside came from all of our people we knew and loved and trusted deeply and they're the ones that would give us the loan for the weed <laughs> so it can be done and 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 i like the gray so we we have this transition that happens from the underground into the gray market as more reforms take hold. But we know that the gray market doesn't last forever, at least not in, in, in our lived experience. Uh, let's fast forward to January 1st, 2018, uh, when California's semi-regulated medical cannabis market, what we're calling the gray market, uh, turned into a fully legal for-profit market. What was that like? Wow, that's a that's big question. So January 1, 2018, Prop 64 goes fully in effect where adult use legalization. And what that meant was the same exact thing that Harborside was doing on December 31st um, became a lot more expensive on January 1st. A lot of that had to do with new taxes that were introduced in the legal framework. And a lot of that had to do with regulatory costs that we all had to carry. And that burden eventually was reflected in the price. And a lot of our vendors that had licenses prior to January 1st did not have a license after January 1st or could not get one after January 1st. So the cannabis that we were procuring was not from the same sources, largely. And a lot of the patients and our customers, particularly those that consume a lot of cannabis or need to consume a lot of cannabis, had very little choice but to return to the legacy market. I, or underground market. Well, let's talk about some specific ways that your work life changed with that transition. Well, we had new stakeholders in Harborside. So we had investors. We didn't have investors really before we were for profit. Investors have tremendous influence over how companies are run, um, who makes decisions, and what decisions are made. You and I had basically done most of that decision-making ourselves. So it was different to have a lot of other folks in the room that we had to make those decisions uh, with. Sometimes it made it hard because we didn't agree. Uh, other times we did agree and it wasn't as hard, but it was another layer of stakeholders that we had to engage with. Uh, and they were important because we had taken their money. So we had to do right by them. It's very hard when your supply chain is disrupted uh, the way it was then. And, and many people don't remember this, but I do. The regulations were written in such a way that many companies, including Harborside, bought a lot of inventory that we had in our vault, anticipating much more robust sales post-legalization. Uh, so for the first six months, I had all this inventory in the vault. I had investors who were really pissed off that I bought it and thought I had done a bad job because there was like $2 million of inventory sitting in there and the people were not coming. They were going to the underground legacy markets. 
And that caused more stress. I've never had a vault full of weed I couldn't sell. Never in my life have, I've always had the opposite problem. I had more sales than I had weed to, to, to procure. And it was so stressful. And you and I, I remember we had to meet with people and we had to manage those account payable. And we had, everybody had to work together to liquidate that inventory. And that was new. And I lost so much sleep over that. And I, I, I can't, I felt so bad that, that, that I had made the wrong call there. It was really the only time in my career I had ever made the wrong call on an inventory matter like that. And when you make the wrong call so badly like that, it does cause you to sort of reflect and look in the mirror and, and go, wow, you know, <laughs> how did that happen? Um, so, and then, you know, just managing everybody's disruption and get it, trying to get all of our previous vendors online and support them with the licensing process was incredibly stressful. And then of course my work with the California Cannabis Industry Association, as soon as, you know, one week into Prop 64, we knew it was a disaster. We started to try to fix it. And I've been trying to fix 64 for two and a half years and we haven't made much progress fixing it. And it's been so difficult some of those disruptions and 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 the move we failed just that the 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 transition from gray to legal in california we have failed and it's not just the politicians sure they failed and the bureaucrats and the regulators but we failed too man and um that's why i'm motivated to fix it as much as i can and as hard as i can and, and it's very hard work Getting anything done politically in California and America right now is very, very hard. And we've had to learn to be political operatives, not just activists. Now we're operatives. It's a totally different thing. Um, so, again, just like going from underground to gray, there's all these new skill sets. We have to be operatives, not activists. We have to figure out a way to lower the tax. We have to figure out a way to lower the barriers to entry. We have to figure out a way to get more of our tribe into the legal system. We have to make persuasive arguments. We have to gather data and demonstrate with data that we're right. And, and these are all these skills we didn't have to have before because we were activists. All we had to do was change the law, but the actual mechanisms of the law itself, we didn't really have to do a whole lot with. Well, now we do. And you know what? We suck at it. <laughs> and we're learning, right? We're all learning. And, and I think we'll get good at it. Um, but right now, we're just not that good at it. So we've, we've been using this term, the, the tribe or the cannabis tribe. And what we mean when we use that term is we're talking about people who have a personal relationship with cannabis, who see the plant as a teacher, as a guide, as a helper in their lives. When we think about the, these three different kinds of cannabis worlds, which one do you think has served the tribe best? Well, the gray, I think, is obvious answer to that question, right? Because what the gray enabled to do, what the gray did, so, so, so if you just break the three down, 
underground economy done a very good job creating wide access to cannabis everywhere on earth with price stability. A really good eighth of cannabis costs about the same underground now as it did when I was in college, maybe a little less even. But the price stability has been very consistent and the accessibility has been wide. There's nowhere on earth you can't score a bag of weed pretty quick. Now, when we go to gray, we were able to preserve a lot of that underground structure. Many of the same people that were doing underground, like us, transitioned into gray because they didn't like being criminals any more than we did. So they figured out a way to get their collectives together and get their medical recommendations together. And whatever the gray framework was, we were smart enough and the framework had enough flexibility in it or vagueness really in it that we were able to fill that void with our own tribal structures, our own tribal economies, our own small businesses. And there were hundreds of them. I mean, Harborside was buying at one point from 600 different small vendors to fill our menu. That's a tremendously decentralized supply chain. Uh, and it helps a lot of families. A lot of families were able to put food on the table in that gray market. Our tribe, our tribe were able to do that. And then when 64 happened, a lot of people weren't able to do that. And they're not able to do that. And that's where the framework has to be smart. And this is where we may have some conflict with other people, other stakeholders in society now that are looking at cannabis with exuberance and may feel like they want to displace the tribe uh, or these pesky tribe people are in our way. But that is the wrong attitude. The right attitude is we're all the tribe. And if we create the right framework, there's no reason we can't have small, medium, and large uh, producers all working together to create a legal cannabis ecosystem that restores justice, number one. Number two, takes care of our planet and is sustainable. And number three, allows our tribe to come out of the shadows and into the light. And, and yes, <laughs> that means some sacrifices we're all gonna have to make to do that. But our tribe, my experience is, has been more than willing to make those sacrifices by and large, yes, there's a few of us who would just rather stack cash underground. But most of us uh, don't. Most of us want to get into the legal business and, and be legitimate and, and be loud and proud with our mission and the work that we, we do. So that's, that's been my experience. I think the gray is, is, is the place um, to be. And, and, and we have to fix the, the legal so that we can all be in it. That is the moral imperative. And I will not rest until we've achieved that. I just won't. So it, it sounds like your hope for the future is that we can preserve the best elements that developed in the gray uh, cannabis market and, and incorporate them more effectively in the future into the completely legal uh, for-profit industry. 
what are your what are your thoughts on how that's going to evolve and um, how long do you think it's going to take for 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 the um, world of, of corporate cannabis to become uh, more receptive to these legacy traditional cannabis uh, values and ways of operating? Well, we're in a moment right now that seems very, very hard for those of us that come from the grassroots of the tribe because there's a lot of corporate energy coming in right now. It feels very disruptive, and it is in many ways. But if we step back and look at that corporate activity through the lens of the plant and compassion, a lot of the folks that are coming in from the corporate world are coming in because they're not real happy with the corporate world and they're burnt out and they're looking for something better. And they actually would like to develop a new industry that has different values than the typical corporate industries like petroleum and timber and cotton and all these industries that have polluted and and perhaps not shared the bounty with society as much as could have been done. So I I see a lot of that. Um, But there's also this moment, right, where a lot of that energy is is in the ecosystem. And and some of that energy, once there is conflict between us and that energy, the bridge between those two groups has not really been built yet. I know that you and I have been trying to build those bridges. Arcview Group was certainly one effort along those lines and there's been many others and we'll we'll keep at it and eventually i think a bridge we're either going to build the bridge or we're going to have two markets for a while um i hope we can build the bridge because i think it's just a lot more fun that way and i think that the transformative potential of the cannabis plant and the cannabis renaissance that you've talked about bro so so eloquently includes the corporate people it has to include them and they have to include us and i think that where the corporate folks i hope to open their minds and hearts a little bit more with some of the cultural work we're doing and some of the other work we're doing they need us the transitions that i've had to make from underground to gray to legal those are valuable skills that can help the corporate people a lot. And I wanna help them with those skills that I've learned. And you know what? They've got skills I never got to learn. I didn't get to go to business school. Never had that opportunity. I was selling weed the whole time. Didn't have the chance to do that. They did. They built legal companies, profitable companies. They raised capital for them in other industries. They were able to grow those industries. Those are skills we need. So what the corporate people have to understand is, and I, don't, I think this is probably a, a, a smaller strain within it, but it's just a very vocal and strong strain, is just share. You know, there, the, the idea that you get to have it all, those days are over, not just with cannabis. Those days are just over, okay? It's over. You're not allowed to have it all. The, the new way of the world is sharing and cooperation. And in fact, 
if you think of all the really great things that have been built in the world, they've been built by human beings cooperating with each other. And so what I want to see with the tribe and the corporate folks, if we can build that bridge and we're actually in the same meeting rooms together with equal status and we're collaborating with each other, man, we can build a really great industry. We can build something transformative in our world, like you talk about in the cannabis renaissance. That is the potential. It's not going to happen just us doing it. It's not going to happen just them doing it. We got to do it together. And it, it's going to take years, I think. It's going to take years. And it's going to be like you said in the beginning of the program, there's going to be different areas of the globe where things are happening at different paces and different zones and different areas on that underground gray legal curve. But that is the mission is to bring all of this together. And uh, I, I just hope that we can successfully build those bridges because that is powerful. If we can do that and everybody's in the tribe and we don't have this, I'm a tribe, but you're not a tribe, but we're all a tribe. That's powerful. That's something very powerful that, that transcends countries. It transcends political parties. It transcends religions. It transcends everything. Uh, and it's, it's what, if our world doesn't need something that brings us together, that transforms, transcends all those other areas that is causing division, <laughs> that's what the world needs. And that's the promise of cannabis. So, yeah. So this is um, this has been a, a great little tour uh, through the different worlds of cannabis that we've lived in. I think that a lot of our audience members are going to go through similar transitions in the course of, of their lives as the pace of reform uh, continues to quicken and as it spreads around the world. And I think that you're absolutely right, bro, that there's really uh, only one choice, either the values of the legacy cannabis community of the tribe are more effectively integrated into legal cannabis, or the tribe will continue doing what it's been doing for a long, long time. And, and that's continued to stay outside the system, which I think would be um, a loss uh, all the way around. So let's zero in on you here. We're, we're just about ready to jump out of this episode, but um, there's been a really big change in your life recently. I uh, still serve as chairman emeritus of Harborside, but after 12 years of working there, uh, you've now moved on to some new projects. So uh, tell us about this transition. Well, first of all, the project known as Harborside that I spent 13 years, 12, 13 years, every single day obsessed with Harborside coming in every single day. That was some, the crowning achievement of my career so far. So I'm very proud of what I did and what we did and what our team did at Harborside and, and, and what is still done every day at Harborside. It's something I'm super proud of. It's a great feather in our cap. And I think it's, it, it really has cemented the beginnings of our legacy, I think. But 
I'm not an employee of Harborside anymore. And, and for the last six months, I have not been. And I'm in my next pivot in life. And there's, you know, whenever we pivot in life, and I've done a few of them now, we've talked about a few of them. There's, there's one thing I encourage that I practice, I encourage everyone to practice, and that is self-care and routine. So take care of your body, take care of your mental health, your emotional health, and spiritual health. Do it every day. I wake up every morning. I take care of that for the first couple hours of the day. And what's good about that is no matter what happens for the rest of the day, no matter how good I'm navigating my pivot or how poorly I'm navigating it, I know that I've taken care of that basic self-care regimen. And that's going to give me a daily practice that will eventually lead to good things. So that's the first thing I'm doing. And the fact that the pandemic's happening at the same time um, sort of feeds that need, I think, and that, that self-care even more. So that's the first thing I'm doing. The three buckets that I'm working in right now that I'm super excited about, one is Social Justice, Last Prisoner Project, co-founded that with you and other people and about a year and a half in on that now and last prisoner projects building some real momentum we're getting folks out of prison and the social justice mission of last prisoner project is 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 marching forward in a good way i also volunteer for social equity groups like the success center in san francisco and want to make sure that the that community has our attention, some of my attention. I, I, I just feel moral obligation to the social justice part of this. Then the other thing I'm doing is creativity. Um, you know, you and I have been creatives our whole career. Trading cannabis has sort of been one canvas that we've used to paint that message on. Uh, but now that I don't have to run the day-to-day -day of Harborside anymore, we've been, I've been able to spend more time on creative projects and whether that be um, some of our creative projects you and I are working on that are a little premature to announce um, or you know I just I'm going to be doing a column for Playboy Media about cannabis coming up this month I'm dropping a column there uh, and uh, a couple of my independent film projects are going to be released uh, this year that are all about cannabis one is going to drop this month, the CBD Nation, which you're actually also in, bro. You might remember it was once called Paying Nation. Um, so my creative projects, the story of cannabis, telling the stories of cannabis, rebranding cannabis and pop culture. That's a big part of my mission post-Harborside. And that's another area I'm spending uh, time in. And, and then the third area I'm spending time in is just consulting and being a strategic advisor to the cannabis community. I especially want to help my tribe and legacy brothers and sisters get legal. Uh, I want to help social equity folks and even big, huge Fortune 500 companies I can help because I've, I, I've become a, a consultant for Global Go. Uh, and they're a firm and they can help uh, people that want to build larger scaled, more complex cannabis uh, companies. So. Those are the four areas I'm working in, and I don't exactly know if social justice will end up being the thing that takes most of my time, or creativity ends up being the thing, or if 
consulting ends up being the thing. I have a feeling I'll be spending a fair amount of time in all three of those buckets and sort of advancing all of those projects uh, one by one. And uh, it's sort of, it's part of being in the gig economy, I think, is, is you, 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 you develop different areas that you work in, uh, you do the work in those areas and then and, and you build off the successes that you have and, 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 and move forward. So the nice thing about the consulting is um, you get to help so many more companies. So I'm helping a hemp plastic packaging company now, I'm helping people grow, I'm helping people with auxiliary businesses and you can part of the mission of, of, of building a new industry with new values, you can do that as a consultant much more widely than I can just running the day-to-day -day of, of Harborside. So those are some of the things I, I, I'm up to. And, you know, I have people can reach out to me, andrewdangelo.com. And I'm easy to get a hold of and engage with. And so I encourage everyone in the tribe to engage. Let's make it happen. Well, thank you so much, bro. Um, it's, um, it's been great to live this life with you, to go through all of these transitions, to help build some of these worlds that we're, that we're living in now, and, uh, and having you here on the show today to, to share your thoughts. Um, I think that what we've seen in the course of this conversation is an inevitable wave of transitions that are going to be taking place in the cannabis communities all over the world. Unless we want to continue living under prohibition, unless we are okay with people like Michael Thompson being locked up possibly for the rest of his life for selling three pounds of cannabis, unless we are okay with the idea that people are still being executed for cannabis crimes in several countries around the world, then we have to look forward to reform. And with that reform, we all see new changes. Our worlds will change inevitably. And some of those changes are gonna be, they're gonna be great, they're gonna be wonderful. It's been great to see people actually getting out of prison and, and to see people who used to have to worry about being busted uh, when they were doing their cannabis business to be doing it freely. The, the gray market was a wonderful time for a lot of us. The threat of law enforcement was removed or at least greatly reduced, but the new rules and the new restrictions weren't in place yet. So it was this great playground for freedom where we could try out different ways of doing things. Uh, I think that the, the, the biggest wave of innovation that cannabis has ever seen that I'm aware of took place in California between 1996 and 2018, largely for those reasons. But we know that that gray market is not going to last forever. It's a transition phase. And sadly, what we've seen so far in the transition from the gray market to the fully legal for-profit market um, has not been very hopeful. A lot of the models that we have seen, a lot of the fallout from the models that we've seen seem to replicate many of the problems with the corporate world and the corporate approach that all of us are, are too familiar with already. And so I think that my brother's absolutely right that where our focus should be 
moving forward is first getting prohibition off of our backs, then doing our best to create examples, create models, point the way during that period of time that we have the freedom of the gray market to do it, create as many examples of cannabis businesses that do operate consistently with the values that cannabis teaches us as we can develop alliances with each other and get strong because we do know that once for-profit corporate cannabis comes, that there's going to be a struggle for legacy cannabis companies and people to remain in an industry which would not exist but for our efforts. So I hope that you'll all give thought to these transitions, no matter where you are in the course of this uh, transitional, evolutionary, revolutionary ramp that we're going through with cannabis. I hope that these um, lessons and stories have been helpful to you. Please feel free to continue to send us your suggestions, your questions about this show or uh, any other show. And uh, just a, a little shout out here before we say goodbye to one of my favorite companies, the Liberty Clothing Company. Uh, Liberty was one of the first cannabis companies to really pivot, uh, converting their clothing production lines to a mask line. And in the beginning, they uh, were only able to make cotton masks. But I'm happy to tell you that Liberty now has a 55% hemp face mask which takes advantage of the natural antiviral and antibacterial properties of cannabis. So if you want a really good mask, consider getting in touch with our friends at Liberty Cannabis. And if you want a really good world, keep on fighting, keep on struggling for your liberty, for your freedom, for the liberty and freedom of our whole tribe all the way around the world. I promise you, my sisters and brothers, one day we will find our way all the way home. Until then, be well, be free. 